0: You know, when I I led a mission team to Haiti last summer and uh, came back from Haiti, I was struck with two things. Number one, how out of touch I was with the power of the gospel. And number two, how in touch I was with my comfort and my conveniences. Just as a side note, it would revolutionize this church if 50% of our membership, not regular attenders, just members, went on a short-term mission trip at least every other year, whether it's to Rwanda or Haiti or Honduras or um, Peru or Staten Island or wherever it is, it would change this church. Well, anyways, time passed as it always does. Last fall in the 8.15 a.m. sunrise class, I took two Sundays to talk about what our message really is based on my experience in Haiti. What is the fuller impact of the atonement of Christ and how should it affect us? And in preparing for those preparations and reading through other materials and that I was consuming at the time, I was again reminded that the gospel of Jesus Christ in theological terms, the atonement of Christ can not only transform a life it can transform an entire culture. Does this sound too audacious to you? Or does it sound like something we just give lip service to, but we really know in our guts, in the, in the core of our beings, that this really isn't gonna happen? You know, one of the greatest things I think that the evangelical church faces today is irrelevancy in our culture. But today, so today I'd like to posit that our culture needs the gospel more than ever. And that the atonement of Christ isn't simply one among many equally valid and morally right religions that people can choose to get to God, but it is the only way to answer our culture's most pressing questions within a coherent whole. Now culture is defined by how it collectively answers the core questions of life. So I'll compare how our culture deals with three of these core questions with how Christianity answers them. And my responses will be in question format. I hope this does two things for us. Number one, it gives us some tools to work with as we talk with people who may not know the Lord. Number two, grow your faith and confidence in the the gospel's power to literally transform a life and to transform a culture. So let's take a look at these three questions. First of all, our culture is asking, how do we define evil and what do we do with it? With all of the terrorism and all of the mass shootings and all of the increased lawlessness and all of the decline in our country and all of the things that are going wrong, we are being faced with this thing called evil and we don't even know how to define it they don't know where to turn to find a definition of evil. If you listen to our news reports and our talk shows and our entertainment outlets, when, they, when the problem of evil comes up, they just, kinda, they just kinda skirt it, they just kinda look the other way. They really don't know what to do with it. And even if they, as a culture, even if we can come to a broad definition of evil, We're never going to be able to shrink it down to personal responsibility. That isn't gonna happen in this culture. Writing for the New York Times, Benedict Carey wrote in his article, for the worst of us, the diagnosis may be evil. When talking about the Ted Bundys of the world and the mass shooters of the world, he wrote this, predatory killers often do far more than commit murder. Many perform their grisly rituals as much for pleasure as for any reason. Among themselves, a few forensic scientists have taken to thinking of these people as not merely disturbed, but evil. Evil in that their deliberate habitual savagery defies any psychological explanation or attempt at treatment. Most psychiatrists assiduously avoid the word evil, contending that its use would precipitate a dangerous slide from clinical into moral judgment that could put people on death row unnecessarily and obscure the understanding of violent criminals. Still, many career forensic examiners say their work forces them to reflect on the concept of evil and some acknowledge that they can find no other term for certain individuals that they have evaluated. More recently in writing for the Clarion Ledger in Jackson, Mississippi, Daniel Gardner was looking back on the Charleston shootings and he wrote this, those with traditional American values wept with black and white believers in Charleston when they turned hate into love, praying that the young man who chillingly killed nine church members would trust Jesus as his savior. This story of love and forgiveness played briefly until the story turned to hatred and ascribed that hatred to a flag. We literally witnessed God work a miracle of love in Charleston that could have otherwise become a racial bomb. And yet many turned our attention to the flag, the Confederate flag, as the real problem. You see, what Benedict was saying is that we have a, time, uh, a difficult time ascribing evil to individuals because we don't want to go from clinical into morality. And what Gardner is saying is that we'll take anything around in the environment in order to explain evil other than looking at our human hearts. We'll do anything. But even if our culture can come along and admit that evil exists in the hearts of the really bad people, it's not for most of us, because we're good people. That's what our culture says. You're not, you're not evil, you're, Jim, you're not an evil person, you're a good person, you're a good guy, right? We're good people, not bad people. The really bad people are the really evil ones. They're the ones Rush Limbaugh calls human debris, which is, by the way, a horrible way to describe anybody, really. What does the Bible say about this thing called evil? Well, it doesn't really pivot on the good, bad continuum. The Bible pivots on the dead, alive continuum. It says that we are dead in sin until we are made alive by Jesus. Look at Ephesians two. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. You see, our culture says that people are either good or bad, or maybe some gradations in between. Christianity says you're either dead or you're alive. It's a different comparison. The atonement of Christ, the gospel, is not about making bad people good. It is about taking dead people and making them alive. And we are dead because we have evil in our hearts. Look at Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? All of us walk in the shadows at times. All of us step back and we say, why did I do it? I don't understand myself. What's wrong with me? Every one of us has done this at one time or another, and maybe multiple times. And it's because there's evil in our hearts. There's evil in my heart, and there's evil in your heart. And the Bible says that our actions are connected to what's in our hearts. You know, the Bible says that if I've lusted after a woman, I've already committed adultery with her. If I've become enraged with another person, I've already murdered them. Because you can't kill unless you're enraged and unless you hate. Luke 6, says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, the Bible says that there isn't any evil that hasn't been committed on this earth that wasn't first committed within the human heart. I'll put that in the positive. Every evil act that has ever been committed on this earth was first committed within a human heart. Even the humanist philosophers, the ones that are atheists, hint at this notion that evil is a personal thing. Virgil wrote in 19 BC, what region of the earth is not full of our calamities? Thomas Hobbes, who died in 1679, an English philosopher. Man is the most cunning, strongest, and the most dangerous animal. David Hume. In his dialogues concerning natural religion, man is the greatest enemy of man. Our culture says, what do we do with evil? We don't know what to do with it. And my question back to our culture is this, can you really talk about evil without first looking into the human heart? Can you really talk about evil without first looking into the human heart? Because if you cannot personalize evil, you will never fully account for it. I promise you, Hitler saw himself as a good man. I promise you, Mao Zedong saw himself as a good man. I promise you, Saddam Hussein saw himself as a good man. It is not about good and bad. It is about being dead in your sins or being made alive in Jesus Christ. That's what it's really about. And when evil is committed, those who are wrong are going to demand justice. And that's our second question. Our culture is asking, where can we go to find justice? Are they not asking that? We have groups all over the place demanding racial justice, climate change justice, reproductive justice, social justice. Economic justice. Maybe my buddies in the sound booth will be looking for football justice tonight. I don't know. Love you guys. But the demands for different types of justice seem to be never ending. I think we're becoming very creative at coming up with new ways to demand new kinds of justice. Some of you may say, Bill needs some clothing justice. I don't know. But in the Really, the best example that I can look to to illustrate what I want to illustrate are the Nuremberg Trials. Now, the Nuremberg Trials were those that were held by the Nazi military leadership, where trials were held for the military leadership of Nazi Germany and to hold them accountable for their war and crimes. These were trials that were held after World War II. And the reason they're called the Nuremberg Trials is because they were held in Nuremberg, Germany, okay? By the way, I've never been to that courtroom, but do you know what's in that courtroom? Among other things, there's two things that are in there one is the Ten Commandments, and the other one is the painting of Satan tempting Eve in the Garden of Eden. The law that is above our laws juxtaposed with the painting that asked the question Did God really mean it? Did God really mean what He said? Judge Roy Moore, in writing for WND.com, about these trials wrote this. The Nazi defendants objected to being put on trial for simply following orders and the laws of their country. They also complained that defining crimes after the fact constituted improper ex post facto laws, which is specifically prohibited by the United States Constitution and the laws of many other nations. So on what basis could the victor nations presume to convene these war crime trials in Nuremberg? These guys were just following the laws of their country. Judge them based on the laws that they were operating under. Don't judge them based on the laws that you have now. And the answer to that question was found in the opening statement of Robert Jackson, who was also a justice on the United States Supreme Court at the time, when he said that even rulers are under God and God's laws. The Nuremberg Court rejected the argument of Nazi defendants that there was no pre-existing law and appealed to natural law in its judgment, noting that so far from it being unjust to punish them, it would be unjust if their wrongs were allowed to go unpunished. Despite the fact that the defendants were following orders on the laws of their country, they were found guilty of violating a higher law to which all nations are equally subject. Both the British and the American prosecutors were expressing something well understood in the law at that time. That the law of man and nations is subject to the laws of God. That the law of man and nations is subject to the laws of God. There is a law above our laws, and our culture says, no there's not. There is no higher law than the Constitution. And it stands to reason that if there is a system of, or there's laws above our laws, that there's also a system of justice that is above our system of justice. God's system of justice is radically different than the American system of justice. Very different than ours. In God's system of justice, those who commit crimes, number one, never get away with it. And number two, have the opportunity to ask Jesus Christ to pay for their crime. And number three, they come to realize that their crimes are first and foremost always against God himself. In the American system of justice, the person convicted of a crime has to pay for their crime. Very rarely will the courts allow someone to substitute by paying and serving the term of another criminal. So here's an example. Let's say that someone commits assault, okay? In the American system, we find the criminals, we convict them in a court, usually with a jury of their peers, we give them a sentence or a punishment, but guess what if they're never found? or if they're never convicted, justice has been thwarted, right? You with me? Yes, Bill, we're with you. Good. In God's system of justice, God knows who they are. They don't need to be found. You're already found. And if they accept Christ as their Savior and Lord, then God forgives them because his wrath has already been poured out on Jesus Christ. The penalty for that sin has already been paid for. And if they don't accept Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, then they will spend eternity in hell paying for their sin. Either way, justice from God's perspective is fully served. And in God's system of justice, the primary person offended is always God himself. Our sin against our fellow man is always against God first and then against our fellow man. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ because God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. The wrath of God that we should rightly face has already been poured out on Christ while he hung on the cross. Now, have you ever wondered, what is it like to bear the wrath of God? I know you don't sit around thinking about this. This isn't something most people sit around thinking about. You don't get up on a Saturday morning and have some pancakes and say to yourself, I think I'll meditate on what it's like to bear the wrath of God. Most people don't do that. But Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology has written extensively on this. I want you to think about a time when you were a kid when somebody just yelled at you, or maybe as an adult, at a time when somebody just unloaded on you. Okay? Now that you got that in your mind, think about what you were feeling. Do you remember the personal disintegration on the inside? Do you remember the cowering? Do you remember just this utter helpless and hopeless feelings that came over you? Do you remember how awful that experience was? If the presence of God, when he does not manifest wrath, arouses fear and trembling, how terrible must it be to face the wrath of God when he displays it fully against you? We couldn't even take it for an instant. It would literally consume us. But Jesus, in his human nature, knew that he would have to bear our sins and to suffer and to die. And in his human consciousness, he probably didn't know how long it would take. And so as they nailed Jesus to the cross, and he's hanging there on the cross, God starts to pour out his wrath on Jesus, the deep and the furious wrath of an infinite God that would cause the most profound, even in an instant, to disintegrate, was poured out on Jesus, not for a minute or two, not for 10 or 15 minutes, but hour after hour, the wrath went wave after wave after wave was poured out on Jesus until he finally cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is this taking so long? I can't bear it anymore. Six hours Jesus hung on that cross and took the wrath of God for you and for me. Six hours. And at the end of it, when he felt Jesus, or when he felt God was lifting his hand, and he realized that the wrath was done, do you know what he cried out? It is finished. And Grudem writes, then with a loud voice once more he cried out, Fathers, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he gave up voluntarily the life that no one could take from him, and he died. As Isaiah had predicted, he poured out his soul to death and bore the sins of many. And God the Father saw the fruit of the travail of his soul. And Isaiah 53, 11 says, God was satisfied. Because our sin is always first and foremost against God, we'll never experience real justice on this earth without first submitting to God's system of justice. And so my question for those in our culture who are demanding so much justice is this. Can you really demand justice without first experiencing God's justice in your own life? Can you really talk about evil without first looking into the human heart? Can you really demand justice without first having your heart transformed by God's system of justice? And thirdly, when we experience God's justice in our own lives, we find that we're in a position to love other people like we've never been able to before. And our culture is crying out to be loved. People desperately want to be loved. Now, this love thing, it's a curious thing, is it not? (laughs) What is love? Everybody needs it and everybody wants it. I want it, but it's a decision to commit, and it's an emotion to feel, right? What do you expect in marriage? promise made and a promise kept. That's all you really expect. What do your kids expect? To be loved, to be taken care of, to be sheltered. It's not their fault they're here. I used to tell my dad that. He'd complain sometimes about how much I was costing. I'd look at my dad and I'd just say, It's not my fault I'm here, Dad. He'd look at me and say, Oh, just shut up. <laughs> but the core of love is commitment. It's not a feeling. The core of love is commitment, a commitment that is focused on the other person, not myself. But our culture has jettisoned commitment as the core characteristic of love, and we have replaced it with what I consider to be a social exchange contract. I'll do these things for you if you do these things for me, and if we both find a level of satisfaction, we call that love. Social exchange contracts devolve quickly because we have started and for many years now, maybe even decades, we have equated love for the act of marriage. We trade our euphoric experiences in the bedroom and we call it love. And is this not the essence of pornography and affairs? They offer a temporary thrill using a social exchange level of thinking containing neither commitment or any type of genuine emotion. The young people now have friends with benefits where they trade sexual favors with no strings attached. You see... True love will always cost you all that you have. And Why is that? Because the commitment of love will force us to face our own shortcomings. My anger, my pride, my lust, my arrogance, my greed, my selfishness, and so forth. Why? Because to love another person unconditionally, which is what the commitment really means, is that I first must give up my conditions of being served and satisfied by the other person. I will love you whether you meet my needs or not. I will love you even in those times when I feel that my needs are not being met. I will, I will forever love you. True love is not social exchange. True love is a decision to sacrifice for the good of the other in spite of whatever deficiencies they may have in their character, in their persona, And in spite of however we might feel that our needs are being unmet. Listen to these lyrics from J.J. Heller as she sings about uh, her song Capturing the Cry for Love. He cries in the corner where nobody sees. He's the kid with the story no one would believe. He prays every night, Dear God, won't you please, could you send someone here who will love me? Her office is shrinking a little each day. She's the woman whose husband has run away. She'll go to the gym after working today. Maybe if she was thinner, he would have stayed. And she says, who will love me for me? Not for what I have done or what I will become. Who will love me for me? Because nobody has really shown me what love really means. He's waiting to die as he sits all alone. He's a man in a cell who regrets what he's done. He utters a cry from the depths of his soul. Oh, Lord, forgive me. I want to go home. Then he heard a voice somewhere deep inside, and it said, I know you've murdered, and I know you've lied. I have watched you suffer all of your life, and now that you'll listen, I'll tell you that I'll love you for you, not for what you have done or what you will become. I will love you for you, and I will give you the love that you never knew. That's Jesus. You see, the Bible says that God realized we couldn't make a move towards him, and so God made the first move towards us in loving us. In 1 John 4, 19, he says, we love him, because he first loved us. God made the first move. And in John 15, Christ said to his disciples, as he's walking from the upper room down to the garden of Gethsemane on that very steep hill, he's walking and teaching his disciples, and he says this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends for everything that I have learned from the Father. I have made known to you. The very God that we talked about offending so much just a few moments ago is the same God who made the first move to unconditionally commit to you and to love you and then to demonstrate the depth of his love by sending his son to die for you and me. Our culture says, will somebody please love me? And my response is this. Can you even talk about love without knowing the one who first loved you? Can we really even talk about love without first knowing the one who loved you? Can you really speak of evil without first looking into the human heart? Can you really demand justice without first experiencing God's justice in your own life? Can you really talk about love without knowing the one who first loved you? You see, the, you know, only in the atonement of Christ are these questions answered in a way that it all makes sense. And you say, well how does that make sense? Because in order to have real forgiveness, these three things have to exist. Real forgiveness is something that we all desire. But we have to have these three things in order for forgiveness to work. You see, in our culture, evil is only for a few people. In Christianity, evil is found in my heart and yours. Our culture says that we need more justice in this nation. And Christianity says, you're never going to find real justice. You're never going to find full justice horizontally until you have found justice vertically with God first. And our culture says, I just wish somebody would love and commit to me. And Christianity says, you can find the greatest love and the greatest commitment at the foot of the cross. Find it there, and you will be loved for the rest of your life and all of eternity. And real forgiveness needs these three things because real forgiveness really does blame the one who has committed the crime. Real forgiveness releases the offender to God's system of justice. And real forgiveness validates the inherent worth of every person to be fully loved regardless of what evil they have committed. That's real forgiveness. I give up the right to hurt you like you hurt me because I'm releasing you to God's system of justice. This is the message that Christianity offers our culture. And you say, well, how can this message change, you know, solve all of our economic problems and our political problems and our social problems? Let me connect the dots for you. As People come to know Jesus. He answers their most basic questions. And out of that, you see changes in their attitudes and in their prejudices and in their pride and in their heart, in their allegiances and how they manage their money and how they commit and love other people and they take those changes into the workplace, they take those changes into our state houses and into our congresses, they take those changes into every institution in life and God transforms the culture. The problems we face are never going to be solved by the Republicans. The problems that we face are never going to be solved by the Democrats. The problems that we face can't be solved by Jesus Christ this question has been answered for, asked for a long time back in the 60's Ed Ames wrote a really horribly melodic song with really incredibly insightful lyrics um, you'll never find yourself singing this song it's just horrible. But the lyrics are great. Because they're very, very haunting. From the canyons of the mind, we wander on and stumble blindly through the often tangled maze of starless nights and sunless days while asking for some kind of clue or a road to lead us to the truth. But who will answer? Side by side, two people stand together vowing hand in hand that love's embedded in their hearts but soon an empty feeling starts to overwhelm their hollow lives. And when they seek the hows and whys, who will answer? On a strange and distant hill, a young man's lying very still. His arms will never hold his child because a bullet running wild has struck him down. And now we cry, dear God, oh why, oh why? But who will answer? Beneath the sprouting mushroom tree, The world revolves in apathy as overhead a row of specks roars on, drowned out by the discotheques. And if a secret button's been pressed because one man has been outguessed, who will answer? Is our hope in walnut shells, I'll start that over, is our hope in walnut shells, worn round the neck with temple bells, or deep within some cloistered walls where hooded figures pray in halls? or crumbled books on dusty shelves, or in our stars, or in ourselves? Who will answer? And listen to this, listen carefully. Stay with me. If a soul is darkened by a fear it cannot name, if the mind is baffled when the rules don't fit the game, who will answer, who will answer, who will answer? Is that not our culture today? We are darkened by a fear that we really cannot name. And the rules are not fitting the game anymore, are they? And we are looking for answers in this culture. And I am here to proclaim that Jesus Christ has answered those questions and is the answer for our culture. So I have only one question for most in the audience this morning. Not everybody, but most. And it is this, do you really believe that Jesus Christ is the answer to our problems today? Or do you just give lip service to this? I'm asking you to do a gut check. Do you really believe, do you really believe that Jesus Christ is the answer to our culture's problems today? And if you have never accepted Christ as your savior and Lord, then today is a good day to do that. You have the opportunity to do that today. Because now you understand that evil exists within our hearts and now you understand that your sin is first and foremost against God and that God has already paved the way for that justice to be satisfied. And now you understand that you can talk about love because God has first made the first move towards you to love you and that you can really have real forgiveness for the rest of your life for all of your sins simply by coming to the cross and accepting Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. You can leave here today knowing that if you were to die tonight, you would spend eternity with Jesus and God in heaven. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us Jesus Christ who is the full and sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Father, I ask that you would build into us a deep confidence and a persevering urgency to engage with our culture in meaningful ways to show that you are the real answer to our problems. May we not shrink in the face of persecution. May we not shrink ever. May we always be faithful to you. In your name, amen.